Good evening, everyone. And thank you so much for joining us uh, for the dry eye disease origin story, understanding the role of MGD. My name is Alice Epitropoulos, and I am joined today by my esteemed colleagues, Drs. Michael Greenwood and Dr. Shepard. So again, I'm Alice Epitropoulos. I'm a cataract and refractive surgeon in Columbus, Ohio. I'm uh, on faculty at Ohio State. Uh, we have a dry eye center of excellence. Dr. Michael Greenward is quite the overachiever. Uh, he is fellowship trained in cornea and glaucoma. He performs advanced techniques in corneal transplants, uh, refractive surgery, MIGS procedures. He does it all at Vance Thompson Vision at, in Fargo, North Dakota. And John Shepard really needs no introduction. Uh, he is the rock star of ophthalmology. Literally, he is an amazing musician. I asked him to do a rap on that, but uh, uh, he also practices ophthalmology. Uh, he is president at Virginia Eye Consultants and professor of ophthalmology, microbiology, molecular biology at Eastern Virginia Medical School. And with that, uh, Michael is going to start us off and tell us a little bit more about the prevalence in diagnosing our patients with dry eye disease and MGD. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, I probably need this. Um, just real quick, in the audience, raise your hand if you're a doctor. And raise your hand if you're a staff member, technician, anything else. And if you don't have any arms, raise your hand. Did I, did I miss anybody? Is there somebody that I missed? Okay. So for those online, the majority of people here are doctors, uh, but we've got some other people as well. So, um, so dry eye is a big problem. They, it, it's uh, the number one most undertreated, underdiagnosed disease in eye care. And when you think about it, we've got trouble with the eyelid, trouble with the eyelashes, poor position of the eyelids and eyelashes, contractival problems, all three layers of tear film, ocular inflammation, all that stuff. And so there's no wonder why it's a huge problem in eye care. And there's about 30 million people that have dry eye disease in the US, but only 16 million of them are diagnosed. So half of the people are walking around undiagnosed with dry eye. And it's a huge, huge problem that, you know, we feels like we've been kind of banging the drum on this for a while, but it still is a big problem that's under under-recognized. And the one thing that really sticks out and that maybe isn't known is that the majority of dry eye disease is actually evaporative dry eye disease. So when we first, you know, we'll get into this a little bit more on the treatment side, but in the beginning, you know, we were just doing anything we could to produce more tears, but the problem is the, the major cause or the major pathology is in the evaporative part. Um, you know, what you can see here, you know, up to 86% of people have the evaporative dry eye part, which starts with meibomian gland dysfunction. And if you're sitting in the audience being like, I don't see it that much, well, it's out there. 63% of cataract patients, 80% of glaucoma patients, you can see the numbers with contact lens wearers, and just in general, like I mentioned before, 86% have, have dry eye. So patients that are walking into your clinic every single day have meibomian gland dysfunction. We just need to find it and look for it. And so how do we do that? Well, we can ask patients for symptoms, and there's a bazillion different symptoms. I've listed you know, quite a few here, but not everyone's going to come in and complain about that, or they might, you know, patients for sure don't make the correlation on it. They're like, hey, my vision, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. I think I need new glasses. And it's like, no, you probably have dry eye. And 
But a lot of times patients are asymptomatic too, and they just don't notice it. Maybe they've got other ocular conditions or systemic conditions where they just can't feel it. And so up to 60% of patients are asymptomatic, but 50% of those patients had central staining, and it can present you know, in up to 80% of patients again. So why does it matter to the people in the room here? Well, one, you're talking to these patients a lot, trying to get them to understand it. Again, they're in your clinic. But more importantly, it can affect your topography, biometry, keratometry, high-order aberrations, which ultimately impacts your cataract, refractive decision-making and your measurements. And so if a patient has dry eye and you don't treat it, they're going to end up with a poor outcome from their cataract surgery, so they're going to be unhappy, and that's going to make me unhappy. So it really is something that we need to address. And there's all sorts of challenges. Again, there's all there's different sign, or sorry, different symptoms. Sometimes you get different signs that are conflicting. The symptoms aren't alone diagnostic, and so we need different ways to do it. So we'll kind of talk a little bit about some of the diagnostic testing. And so uh, the first one I'll kind of talk about is osmolarity. Um, and does anybody out in the audience, do you guys use osmolarity? Couple, all right. And so um, the, I want to get all my pictures up here. So the, there, there's different ways to do it, but basically it comes on a, uh, on a little chip. You just take a little sample of the tear, and then uh, from this small little sample, taken you know, usually by the technician, you go and place the device back on the stand, and it gives you a reading. And it gives you a number, and in this case, low is good. Anything under 310 is considered normal. Anything above 310 is considered abnormal. And if you have a difference between 10, between the two eyes, that's also abnormal. And so why does that matter, the difference? Even if they're both under 310, but the difference between the two is 10 or greater, it's because you've got tear film instability. There's just mixtures that are going up and down. And you know, at Cinco de Mayo, we talked about this a little bit, but if you have a high number or high osmolarity, it's like having a little bit too much tequila in your margarita. You're gonna take a sip and it's gonna be a little bit, little bit spicy for you. And so the goal here is we want really dilute tears because dilute tears are better for the surface. If you've got high osmolarity or high concentration of your tears, it's just more concentration of stuff that's gonna be sitting on your eye, leading to inflammation and starting this cascade of, of dryness. And you, I, I didn't look, but I think you guys use this in the clinic. Do you, you do it on every patient, people that have complaints? Where, where do you guys use osmolarity? Well, there's two ways to approach this. One is a business approach and, and one is a clinical approach. If you try to do every dry eye test on every new dry eye patient or cataract patient who walks in the office, the patient will be there for three hours and you'll have a plethora of information you can't interpret. There's no diagnostic panel like cholesterol. And you can't do more than one thing at a time for a dry eye diagnosis. So if you do an osmolarity and then you put in a plug, you only get paid for the highest code. In reality, it's our job to look at the patient and try to figure out what the most important problem is. And as a screening tool, osmolarity is great because it will tell you if they have dry eye or if their litany of complaints is due to another problem like allergy, meibomian gland disease, or lid dysfunction, or toxicity or environmental problems. So it's a, it's a good differentiator. It's a good initial binary pathway determination of whether or not they really have dry eyes. So it's, it's very useful, and it's very subject to user error. If your technicians don't know how to collect this, if they don't get to the machine in time, and if patients been taking their drops, I never let them have any drops whatsoever before they have this test. You may even have to bring them back on another visit to get an accurate test. But it's very useful under controlled circumstances. Well, I, you know, I, 
I think it's important, especially in our um, preoperative patients that are undergoing cataract surgery, to really, you know, try to assess this, identify dry eye disease before, you know, we published a paper in 2015 showing that patients that were hyperosmolar had greater variability in their K readings and IOL power calculations compared to normal osmolar patients. So it really kind of helps to identify those patients that are at high risk of refractive surprises. Who published that study? Dr. Epitropoulos, Dr. Matosian, uh, there were several authors on that paper. <laughs> very nice. Thank you very much. So moving on, uh, another diagnostic test that you can use as sort of a, another screening test is an inflammatory marker looking for MMP9 in tears. It's a nonspecific inflammatory marker with a you know, pretty wide normal range. Um, and, and it's a little bit more sensitive diagnostic marker than their clinical signs, um, but it does have good correlation with the clinical exam findings. And so the way this works is similar to, um, you know, we showed with the, the, the tear sample collection, but it's a, um, basically a, not preloaded, but ready to go device with a small little absorbent sponge on the end. You have the patient look up, you soak up some of the tears, and then you assemble the test, you wait a little bit, and then it gives you you know, you know, one line, two line, and it tells you if it's positive or negative, similar to, you know, we used to always reference like a pregnancy test. Nowadays, it's a COVID test. And, um, and so you can see how that kind of works. And so, so same question, uh, real briefly, do you, uh, how many people in the audience use this test on a routine or use it in general? So not as many as the previous, and then uh, you guys use this, yes or no? I have it in our office. Um, you know, I think that you know, like uh, Dr. Shepard said, you know, we have our technicians doing so many things, and, you know, so we, you know, we use it in preoperative patients, but not consistently not really. on, yeah. And we're, we're, we're kind of the same with, with both of those. Mm -hmm. It's another binary differentiator. If you're convinced they have inflammation, you go down the anti-inflammatory pathway. It's semi-quantitative. You have, like, the light, the normal, and the super pink. It gives you about 40, 80, and 120 uh, nanograms per milliliter, and you can actually follow these as a response indicator for a given anti-inflammatory topical agent. Question, sir. That's the you, FACO study wait, from you, Bill can, Trattler, yes. Can you, repeat, can you repeat the question for the online people? No, our, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bill Trattler from, from South Florida published a paper. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure, Alice, you're familiar with this. Mm -hmm. He found that almost 50% had lid margin disease pre-op, which is an astounding number. I, I haven't seen that paper, but just to comment, I mean, to go back, you know, to the, one of the original slides, you're, you're correct. Like, it is an astounding number, and, and we're just not recognizing it or maybe taking advantage of some of the, uh, you know, not, not the diagnostic part, but the therapeutic part where we want to address it ahead of time. Because, again, if, if they've got, you know, signs, symptoms, it's interfering with their biometer and stuff like that, you're not going to get the result you want, and the patient isn't going to get it either. And um, and now with some like emerging treatments, now we have the opportunity to to address that a little bit better than we did in the past. That's the often quoted FACO study. He looked at the pre-op cataract patients. Seventy-eight percent had dry eye. Three quarters didn't know it and complain of symptoms. And so about two thirds of those dry eye patients had MGD. That's 
kind of the same as Mike Lem's study from over a decade ago when he saw that 86% of dry eye patients had MGD. And Priya Gupta came up with very similar findings showing the high prevalence of patients with dry eye disease uh, presenting for cataract surgery. So those were kind of like the, you know, quote unquote invasive procedures because you have to physically, you know, touch the patient. This, this is an example of something that's, uh, you know, non-invasive or imaging kind of based. And so there's ocular surface inferometers and they can look at lipid layer and see how, you know, thick or thin it is. And again, you know, more is better in this case because you want to have uh, a nice lipid layer that's sitting on top of your tear film so it sticks around longer, it spreads it out nice and neat. And then you can also uh, take a look at the, the blink ratio, like how often are patients blinking all the way because that mechanical action of the eyelids touching, you know, coming together and blinking, that helps decrease inflammation, keep the meibomian glands open, you know, so that the, the wine bottle isn't getting corked up, so to speak. Uh, I don't know why all my references are alcohol-based in this moment, but we, I tell patients, you want your meibomian glands to be nice and open. You don't want them corked up like that. You don't want it to come out like thick toothpaste. You want it to come out, you know, the consistency of oil. But, but so there's, there's ways to measure that. And I forgot to poll the audience, but does anybody use this uh, in, in your practice on a routine basis? So yeah, again, so fewer. Uh, we use this one quite a bit. Um, and, and the other thing that comes along with this is the meibomian gland structure. And so I like to compare this, you know, for the people that don't treat, you know, dry eye or meibomian gland dysfunction on a routine basis, but you're, you're, everyone's used to looking at optic nerves. And so it's sort of like comparing it to glaucoma status where you've got a nice healthy nerve or you've got a nice healthy meibomian gland structure. But as soon as you start to see some changes, now you want to take intervention before it's at end stage and it's too late. Because once you <clears throat> lose these meibomian glands, you can't really get them back, and so you want to keep, keep what you have. Uh, so we, we use this a fair amount, and when I first got it, I was like, I don't, I don't really need this. Like, I can see my bomian gland dysfunction or blocked up glands, you know, very easily at the slit lamp, but this is a great tool for educating patients. It's another, you know, reference is like an x-ray to them, and patients want to see it. They want to know, like, why do I have dry? What's causing it? And so you can show them, like, hey, here's your my bomian gland uh, structure. Here's what normal is. And they're like, oh my gosh, like, I, I bet I, I got to do something about this. Like, I'm worried that I'm losing something. Um, and and uh, I got, you know, if you don't want to get any of the, the, the tools or the diagnostics or the thing we talk about, we've always got our clinical exam. And, and this is just another example showing what kind of normal function is. Again, when you press on these lids, you want it to come out like a nice oil, uh, you know, very easy to come out, spreads very nicely. When it gets a little bit more thick, you know, and kind of clumpy, you can push on it gently and you can see it kind of come out kind of, you know, like unmixed peanut butter maybe. Um, and then it gets into like the toothpaste stuff and, uh, and you just don't want it to be that way. And you can describe it to patients that way. They understand those references very well. And so if you don't, in, you know, you don't need these tests, but you've got to do a good clinical exam because if you don't look for it, you're going to miss it but we know that it's out there and it's very easy to do. You have the patient look up, you have the patient look down, you can press gently you know, on the exterior of their, of their lid margin and you can see what the consistency and the number of their glands is gonna be. So that's you know, the, the diagnostics in a nutshell. That was a great summary. Um, I wanted to ask, do you um, do a dry eye questionnaire um, 
in yeah, the office? We, we do, um, and we use kind of like a variation of the speed test, mm -hmm. and um, so we use it, but we, we don't look at it all the time, uh, which is, you know, a sin on our end, but, but we do use it because it can help tease things out a little bit, or it provides like a, a prompt for the technicians to, you know, when they get it, they can look at it, and they can start asking the patients a little bit deeper on the questions, like, hey, I see that you checked off a couple of these boxes, you know, fluctuating vision, whatever, um, you know, can you tell me more? And that helps us dive a little bit, be a little bit deeper. So it, we do use it because it helps kind of stimulate conversation. How about you, John? It's a nice system to have. You like to have a standardized symptom inventory. My favorite ocular surface disease inventory is, do you have dryness, itching, or burning? That's all I want to know. But we also do a speed test, and a great way to do that because it's qualitative and uh, frequency-oriented is you use Freesia, which is an inventory intake uh, iPad-like device, and you give it to the patients. They put all their data in there. They put their complaints in. They can fill out a questionnaire. Then you get a number, and you can see if uh, somewhat objectively they're improving. So if you haven't looked at Freesia, it, it saves you about two FTEs at the front desk. And we use the SPEARD questionnaire also, and, you know, my technicians actually, you know, use that um, in order to kind of take it to the next step. If they're symptomatic, then they'll go ahead and get point-of-care testing. If they're asymptomatic, then they don't. And, again, a lot of that is billing. But don't be fooled because there's a lot of asymptomatic dry eye patients out there. 